Hey, what's going on? This is David Avalon with another episode of Breaking the Guard with me and Robert Drysdale. In today's episode, we start off talking about UFC 245 with Kamaro Usman and Colby Covington before we move into why curiosity is an important aspect of every martial artist and really every person's growth as an individual. And we also talk about how humiliation, loss can uh, affect why people don't continue to pursue something that they're passionate about. And uh, we go into some personal anecdotal stories, including one of mine, which is the first and only time I competed with the Gi. <laughs> That's a funny one. And uh, we also talk about some more MMA history, particularly why uh, Hicks and Gracie wasn't used for UFC one so this is a fun conversation i think you'll enjoy it and we're also in a new studio which uh looks a lot better at least from our end hopefully you enjoy it as well before we get started i'd like to thank one of our sponsors which is drysdalebjjonline.com drysdalebjjonline.com it's robert's membership site and this is where he's putting up all of his instructional materials and it's very simple, unlike other membership sites which are charging monthly fees. Uh, his is just a flat rate for purchasing mini courses. Uh, he has, I think, 10 or so different courses available right now. And each of those courses cover a specific section and they go for as low as, I believe, $9.99. Uh, very affordable. And again, Robert's an excellent instructor, really high quality material, very well explained. So it's uh, actually <laughs> probably too low of a price, if, in my opinion. So go ahead and take advantage of it now uh, by ordering at DrysdaleBJJOnline.com. Hey, what's going on? David Avalon here with Robert Drysdale for another edition of Breaking the Guard. We're on episode number 21. And, uh, Goes quick. Yeah, yeah. And Feels like we started yesterday because we actually started talking about the project like, like over a year ago, really. We did, yeah. We didn't, get, but we didn't actually start releasing the episodes until like six months later. After then, we started filming, because the first yeah. episode was Philippe Pena. Yeah. And Philippe Pena was here, yeah, about at least eight months ago, right? Yeah. That was a while ago. It was so, a while ago. So we finally we're be, we be consistent. That's the most important thing. We what we talked about is like when we start. You know, we wanted to be consistent and we wanted to release at least one episode a week, which we've been doing. And I think we had like four or five lined up and now we're like, we film and then Dave edits and, you know, puts it out the next day. So, yep, yep. So yeah. we're trying to crank them out for you guys. We also you might not notice it, but we've moved to a new location. Yes. <laughs> if it looks better, it's because it is. There's a lot more room back here. Yeah. Um, I, we had a, we, I'll, I'll tell you guys, I have a casita at my house. And I have a lot of times like kids that come over to train jujitsu and hey Rob, I need a place to crash. I'm like, sure, crash in the casita. So me and Dave are gonna film sometimes. And that's the studio, right? So every now and then you gotta wake them up, you know, like, hey man, you go <laughs> go hang out somewhere else. We gotta film. So it was really inconvenient. Dave just bought a beautiful home, like four minutes away from my house. Yeah. It's like walking distance, right? So it's perfect. And um, yeah, so now we got much more space. 
It's funny because like this guy just texted me. He's like, "Hey, Rob, you want to film?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, come over." <laughs> yeah, I completely forgotten. Like all the the stuff was over here already. So it's the first episode at Dave's house. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some topical news that we have going on. Uh, well, the UFC two forty five or two thirty five. Can't keep up, man. I forget it's one of the fives. But uh, it just passed with a big event, Kamaru Usman with Colby Covington. And uh, spoiler alert, if you don't want to hear the result. Uh, Usman won by TKO in the fifth round with like less than a minute left, and uh, I I didn't get to watch the fight unfortunately. I was busy moving stuff here, but I did see some of the highlights. And one of the things that drew my attention to it was that uh, apparently Usman broke Colby Covington's jaw in the third round, and he fought essentially two and a half or three rounds really through with a broken jaw in a fight that had zero wrestling, zero takedown attempts from either guy. They just stood toe-to-toe and tried to rock him, sock him. So I don't think if you've never had your jaw broken, which fortunately me and Rob haven't, but from what I hear, it sucks. <laughs> I can't imagine because I think the, the, the biggest thing was, well, not even the pain, but the knowing that your jaw is broken. It's just like hanging there by your tendon or skin or whatever, right? And you're still getting punched repeatedly because you're in a slug fight. Like yeah. it's not, it's not exactly like you said. They're not like pummeling on, on the fence. Like you know that your jog is just hanging there by a thread, and there's someone still punching it. Yeah, and apparently you know? the, the fracture was just like here. They had the, the the picture of the punch that they believe was the one that fractured it, and it was like a right hand. They just caught him like kink, like right in the the middle of the jaw. So the fracture was here. I mean, like you said, it's t- because one, I imagine you probably can't clench your jaw well with the amount of pain you have. So yeah. now every other shot's going to be worse. Because, yeah. You know, you're going to be swinging, your jaw's going to be flinging around everywhere. And then two, then in the back of your head, you know, every time you get hit, you know, it's going to be brutal, you know? Yeah, like it, it's, it's got to mess with, I mean, to keep in the composure, like I, I really admire that someone can do that. Um, yeah, it's a tough, I wonder if the doctors would have stopped it had they known. That's the question. I don't know. I mean, that's another concern, right? Because... The closest I've had to that was just a broken nose, and the pain of it didn't really bother me. You know, because a lot of times in the fight, the adrenaline's just yeah, you're not really feeling. You it. don't feel it as much as you think. Yeah, but you I was bleeding like a faucet, and my concern was the ref actually stopped the fight, and then they had the doctor check it, and then yeah. they oh, you want to continue? I'm like, of course. But now I'm thinking, crap! If I get tagged again, I'm gonna lose the fight because they're gonna want to stop it because yeah. they've already made a big show of it. So it's like another thing you have to worry about already you know i think the thing that was interesting with that fight is that neither of them even attempted to go to the ground once i i suspect that they respected each other's wrestling too much maybe and they didn't want to they knew it was going to be a long difficult fight five rounds right so they probably i don't want to waste a lot of energy trying to take this guy down because i don't feel like i can hold him down right long enough to actually cause any damage right or win the round at least so probably they're both looking at each other and going you know, we have a better shot at just, you know, banging it out for, till like the end of the fifth round and then, you know, win a decision. I think that was their strategy for both of them walking in because anyone who has fought or anyone who trains knows how much energy goes into trying oh, yeah. to take someone down. You, it knocks the wind out of you, you know, because, you know, it's one thing to move something that's heavy that doesn't mind being moved, like a heavy bag, right? Whereas like someone that's weighs as much as you who doesn't want to get taken down is doing everything in their power for you not to move them that's a whole different story and it really wears you out and then fighters know this so there's a reason why they're not too invested in that 
especially when they know they're going against a high-level wrestler like they both are. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people expected that as much because they're very similar. Like even their records, I don't know if you know this, they both had the same record. I think they're both 15 and one, or they were. Uh, they have a common opponent. Like I guess uh, Usman lost to a guy, actually I used to train, uh, Jose Caceres yeah. in Miami by Rene Kachok. And then Colby lost to this other guy, Warley Alves, by a guillotine or something. But then each of them have beat the other guy. Okay. And they both had the same uh, submission record, same knockout record, same everything. So, and then the strategy is obviously the same too. So yeah. it's like, almost like a mirror image fighting each other. That's at least interesting. Style wise, that. yeah. Character wise, are <laughs> completely different. Because Usman is born in Nigeria, is that correct? Um, I'm not sure. I know he's obviously in Nigerian descent. Because I know his name too, you yeah, know. Yeah. Give him what, but I'm, I'm wondering if he was born there and he was raised in the U.S. or if it's just his parents or immigrants from Nigeria. Yeah, I, don't know, yeah, I, don't I know, know the he story. went to college in here, and that's the whole joke with the Marty thing. I don't know if you heard with Ben Askren. Ben Askren yeah. on a press conference called him Marty because apparently when he was in college, he was called Marty. So he's like, I always knew him as Marty. Now he's suddenly Usman. I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. But oh, that's funny. I know that. Then, so there was a lot of Marty references to yeah. referring to Usman, you know. Did they wrestle together or no? Um, No, because there were different divisions. uh, So, like, the other criticism was that uh, Usman is a Division II wrestler, and then uh, both Ben Askren and also uh, Colby are Division I wrestlers. Yeah. So, it's kind of like, it's not exactly equivalent, but some people will say minor leagues versus major leagues. Yeah. It's not that, there is a gap, but it isn't that big. That big of a gap, yeah. Yeah. And especially when, now we're talking about MMA, I think all that kind of, Way, you know? Because you can have a wrestling style that is very uh, geared towards MMA. Like you can have a boxing style that's more geared towards MMA. Yeah. Same for jiu-jitsu, same for just about anything, right? I remember that, you know, some wrestlers early on in the early days of MMA, there were wrestlers that were like Olympic caliber making a transition to MMA and they weren't doing well. No. And then we've seen tons of jiu-jitsu guys that, you know, try to make that transition. Same thing. They didn't do so well. And then you get guys, you know, speaking jujitsu wise here, like guys that were not, they were not so, they were not, you know, as dominant in, in, in BJJ as they were in MMA. Like guys like Noguera, his career was in MMA. He was good at jujitsu, but he was never like a top 10 guy, right? But he was probably the most successful jujitsu guy ever making MMA. He won a UFC and a pride belt, right? So I think it has to do with how you fight and how your original style translates into MMA, right? Yeah. It's, because I, it's 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 a different ballgame. Like it doesn't matter how you put. It. Like all wrestlers, I think probably the ones out of all styles that transition best to MMA. If you ask me, overall, a lot of gray area there. But like overall, if you had to really press, I think it's fair to say, right? And but even so, like I imagine a lot of guys. Because they just think, you know, how good of a wrestler you are. You know, like getting punched in the face. You can be super tough, very well conditioned, super athletic, and then someone hits you in the face and you break right away. Yeah, and the fighting chain, like the one wrestler I can think of as an example that doesn't wrestle really well, to be honest, is Dan Henderson. If you look at him, he gets taken down like early. If you watch yeah. early UFC and Prides, he'll get taken down like easily. He doesn't really do like he gets That's some right. big throws yeah. in sometimes, but yeah. like he's like the most unwrestler wrestler in MMA. And yeah. he's known for the atomic right hand. Yeah. <laughs> he's not known for his wrestling in MMA. That's true. That's true. So it's a, and he's a world class wrestler. Yeah. You know, so and, I remember I watch him like, how come he's getting taken down? You know, like and that's just, such a common theme too. Yeah. Like I've seen so many guys at Extreme Couture. I'm not going to mention names. Yeah. I used to train there back in the day. 
And these guys come from collegiate wrestling, you know, outstanding records. And you can see them slowly transitioning into becoming strikers. And next thing you know, it's like, I think they, they're losing their wrestling. It's like, I, don't, I can't speak for Dan Anderson, but I was yeah. watching some of these guys. And I, because I trained with them for years, and I think that the reason why it wasn't that their box, just that their boxing got better, their kickboxing got better, is that they were actually losing their wrestling skills, because skills is just very much like languages. You'll forget them, you'll lose them, just like any. You'll forget your mother tongue. Imagine that. Yeah. You don't think you'll forget jujitsu? So you know any kind of skill set, you're either improving or you're losing them. It's it's just a fact. And I think a lot of guys either because they can't stand wrestling anymore, or they feel that they're never going to lose a skill set, or maybe there's not a coach making them do all those drills that they hated or whatever the case a lot of guys lose their original skill set vitor belfort what is vitor belfort known for he's known for his striking yeah but he came from jiu-jitsu like he was like a national juvenile champion in brazil in, in, in as a blue belt you know back in 96 whenever that was and but like very early on in his mma career even though he's always representing jiu-jitsu I mean, he has, like, very few submissions. Like, yeah. he was always known as a striker, right? Yeah, I think the, the first mental image I have of him is doing that Jeet Kune Do straight blast, pretty much, where he just machine gun Vanellay, you know what I mean? To this day, I think that's one of the most beautiful knockouts in the history of the sport. Yeah. But that was funny, because that is straight from Jeet Kune Do. Like, it, if I remember correctly, I don't think he even had his hands horizontal, like... Like regular, like boxing. Yeah, he had like he just went like wow, wow, wow. That's like straight blast. Awesome. <laughs> just ran him because I think through. he landed. Like if you don't know what we're talking about, we're yeah. talking UFC Brazil, nineteen ninety eight, right? Yeah. So this is old school. And early in the fight, first minute, right from from memory, um, Vitor Belfort lands something on Vanderlei, and it rocks his head back. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that when some of that happens, it's like okay, I'm rocked and. You know, maybe the guy follows up with a combo, but normally it stops and the guy recovers, right? Yeah. But Vitor Ashi, I don't know if you read the situation very quickly. I have to watch it again, or if you'd already have that in mind. But before the first punch comes back, the second one's already coming out, and he just blasts Vandalay across the cage and drops him at the other end of the cage, and boom, end of the fight. It was like, what, eight-punch combo kind of thing? Yeah, that's why it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And, and even with the UFC being as crazy as it was in the early days, there wasn't anything quite like that yet. No. There wasn't anybody who just literally machine gun punched somebody straight no. through. And it, it made him a, a legend. Yeah, you know? and even... It's a cult even, phenomenon. Yeah, and, yeah, but even, even um, uh, you know, like high-level boxers, like the transition to the UFC, they were not doing that. Yeah. I mean, very... I mean, how many boxers went to the UFC and were doing what Vitor was doing back in the day? Yeah. I can't think of anyone. I mean, there might be someone that actually was that dominant with their hands, but... Vitor was really something else. And at a stage where MMA, the striking level wasn't there. It's nowhere near where it is today. But uh, something happened with that guy's boxing where he got it quick. He just had a gift for it, whatever the case. Very fast, very athletic, obviously. But, you know, till this day, I think he's very, very impressive. Vitor, to me, is one of the most impressive MMA fighters of all time. I'll tell you why. He, he, I think he's had the longest career out of everyone. I think he had his first fight at 16. He's yeah. like 42 now and still fighting. When's the last fight? So it's... When he thinks of, like, who has fought as much. Talk Dan Henderson. He fought a lot. Yes. But I don't think his career was as long as Vitor's. Because Vitor started before. Yes, he did. Vitor, you're, you know, I never thought of that, Robin. But you're right, man. Like, he's been in there for a long who's, time. Who's fought? Yeah. I, I look at the guys like Frank Mir. And Frank Mir has been fighting forever. But he's not. He hasn't been fighting as long as Vitor. I can't think. Randy, could say, you name Chuck Liddell. Find someone who's fought longer than Vitor Belfort. I can't think of anyone. Yeah. And especially... 
because of how many like generations back really because he was like just after i would say like the first wave of ufc fighters yeah right because you had ufc one through like 10 which was like a whole, it was a first, yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was very a, rough. Yes, it was. Uh, it was like a whole different sport. Like it really, I feel like it, the birth of MMA in a lot of ways, the modern MMA or 21st century, whatever you want to call it, was after like you know Tito and like Chuck and that. Right, that's when the UFC really began. It looks a lot more what it looks like today. To yeah, me. but the early UFCs, even though to me they're more fun to watch. To be frank, I'd yeah. much rather watch Hoist Gracie and the Gee fighting a sumo wrestler or a boxer. Yeah, it's much more interesting. It's more more entertaining to me. But yeah. like the it, the it, it was a different art almost, like something completely separate to what we're watching today. Yeah, because we, we were seeing a lot of style versus style. Yeah, right. So like you say, it wasn't really MMA yet. It it was mixed martial arts in the sense that there were different martial arts fighting each other, but it wasn't one person in multiple disciplines. You yes, know, that, that really wasn't there yet. You know, at least anybody successful. All the successful guys were strong specialists that yeah. were just using the specialty to overcome everybody else. But yeah, once Tito and Frank Shamrock started coming around, those guys started to blend things well together. It, it became more sophisticated for sure during that phase of MMA. Um, but even uh, Vitor, I mean, he was, I think he was before Tito, right? Because he goes before. He, yeah, because he fought Tank Abbott. And I remember no, Tank Vitor, an old school guy. I want to say but. Vitor was in there, what, UFC 8, 9, something like that? I can't remember. He was the youngest UFC champion. Everyone gives John Jones credit. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. But I, don't, I guess it's different because... <coughs> Sorry, guys, choked on water. <coughs> but, you know, it's, it's a belt, it's a weight system, right? But yeah. Vitor had a UFC belt when he was 19. He's never counted as the youngest. John Jones gets that title, but... He, he turned at 19, he had a UFC belt. He's the youngest champion ever. Yeah, fighting just with pretty like, impressive. When fighting you think with about less it. rules and just less yeah. rules. Yeah. So it's definitely. I mean, he was one of those guys. I remember that you would. Oh man, like everyone he was, was going to fight Tank Abbott. Everybody was, because Tank. If you don't know who Tank is, you still. Uh, he <laughs> would drink. Yeah. The legend has it he would like drink a couple beers before he walked out there. Yeah. Just yeah. a big old beer belly. Yeah. But he was actually a wrestler when he was in college. And he yeah. was actually, he was Tito Ortiz's coach, sort of, like, coming up. I know, like, Tito Ortiz, when he first got in the UFC, Tank was in his corner. Oh, I didn't know that. So they're yeah. both from Huntington Beach. Okay. So there was a connection there. I'm not sure where it is, or he just bumped into him. And, yeah. But there was a connection there. <clears throat> but, yeah, I remember that. And he was like, oh. Tank had this legend for knocking people the hell out because he was one of those first guys, I think, also that would just lay people out with one punch. He's super powerful guy. I yeah. remember that. He fought, he fought this huge, I think it was a Hawaiian guy. It was Samoan. Or, um, I forget his name. It was like, with the ponytail. The, yeah. The, uh, I know the name. Lost the name. But he essentially Frankenstein this guy. Like, right? Like, he hit him with one right hand and the guy went yeah. stiff. You know, like, and he looked like a cockroach kind of with the arms and legs out. Yep. And I, I think I was one of those first crazy ass knockouts. You're like, oh man. You know what? But yeah. just going back to this is because yeah. Vitor is weird, it's strange to me because, you know, he's a jiu jitsu guy from Rio de Janeiro. Remember, Brazil, a country that doesn't have a tradition in boxing. Like, you know, now it's starting, but even wrestling in Brazil is a thing, I believe it or not. Yeah. But because of MMA and jiu jitsu, but it doesn't have, it's never had a tradition in boxing like the UK or the United States, for example, right? Uh, but I think Vitor, in a lot of ways, was a byproduct of. Carlson Gracie. And the reason being is Carlson is hands down one of the most important characters, not only in BJJ, but also MMA. 
he was the guy who way back in the day when he was fighting, like, I think he did a much better job than everyone around him at understanding the importance of cross-training disciplines, right? He was never an MMA coach. He was like, oh, you train jiu-jitsu, pure jiu-jitsu. Like, Hoist Gracie was sold that way. I'm pure jiu-jitsu. I'm going to grapple you and choke you. And, you know, you may not like this style or whatever the case, you know. Hoist Gracie was very important to the, to the... He was the right guy at the right time for the sport to explode. But Carlson Gracie, who cornered Hoist in his first UFC, if I'm not mistaken, mm. he was far more advanced than the rest of the family in terms of MMA. He had his guy's box. He understood the importance of wrestling. He understood perfectly well that if you can't take someone down, it's pointless to be an expert on the ground. So if you look at like that first generation of MMA fighters out of Brazil, if you pay close attention, where were they fighting out of? Carlson Gracie's camp. Because Carlson like, is always a guy who's always a step, uh, uh, a step ahead of the game. That's why, to me, he, you know, he's such an interesting guy in the, in the whole development of BJJ and MMA. And I think Vitor was like the first big export product out of the Carlson Gracie team. Yeah, I mean, it, that's interesting. I didn't know that he was in, Carlson Gracie was in Hoist's corner. Too. I, 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 if I the first or second or 30th, I don't know which one yeah. it was. I believe it was the first. I think Hickson was there too. Legend has it that the reason why Horry, because Hickson is always, everyone knew that Hickson was the best one of the family at that time, right? Like he was the best guy. Um, that, you know, they say that, oh, Hoist was skinnier, Hickson was too buff, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the right sell. We wanted someone who was skinny and unathletic, that that was going to be the best sales pitch to an American audience, which makes perfect marketing sense. Yeah. Big athletic guy wins the fight, not that impressive. Skinny, unathletic looking guy wins, right? I have a different theory why that was. I think that Horian, because Hoist was so young, Horian could control Hoist in a lot of ways, in the ways he couldn't control Hickson. Hickson was the alpha dog. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to, you know, what do you mean by you're my boss? Like, Hoist was like this young kid. Horian brought him over when he was like 17. And I think it was easier for him to be boss's brother around just because he was less mature. He was a lot younger. I think that's the real reason. Otherwise, I think that if, if it came down to it, it would have been a smarter decision, a more, more likely for the jiu-jitsu to win if Hickson had been fighting the UFC. And yeah. it turned out it didn't work that way, and it was probably for the better. Yeah, for sure. It is interesting that uh, Hickson never got into the, the UFC. You know, you would, have, yeah. you would have thought that they would have put him in there. But it's probably like you said, he's kind of his own man. So I imagine he probably yeah, didn't want to be. It's something to do with that. I think there was like some contractual issue too where he was not allowed to fight here. They, you know, they clash a lot, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a friendly relationship. It's on the outside. They have to, you know, present themselves that way because it, they benefit from that image of a tight, tight, you know, knitted group of people. But in reality, anyone who knows, who knows a sport knows it's not that way. I think there was some kind of contractual issue where he was not allowed to fight in the U.S. That's why he's never actually fought in the U.S. And that's why he went to Japan. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing, like, you know, just building off of that, the MMA scene in Japan kind of always existed. You know, to say that Pride was a byproduct of the UFC, which a lot of people think, you know, blew up in the U.S. and the Japanese go, oh, we're going to create our version of the UFC. It's not entirely true. They had the Shuto. Yeah. Shuto's MMA. Like just bigger gloves. That's the only difference, right? Some modify. I think some rules are slightly different. Yeah, no elbows. But they but you're right. They've been doing it. But I think it's I think a lot of people confuse it and it's easy to confuse it with the pro wrestling scene there as well. Yeah. Because a lot of shoots overlapping works. They're yeah. they're you know, rigged fights or whatnot, but some of them aren't, you know. So it's hard to say which ones were legit versus which ones aren't. 
I think with the whole, uh, what you might call it, Yakuza connections too, it kind of makes everything like, eh, you never know. What's... Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that, you know, I was just talking to High Well from, from Flow about this the other day, and we're talking about how like things go in full circle, right? Fake fights are not new. They go way back. In fact, catch, catch wrestling in Brazil is the word they use to call pro wrestling. Huh. The term pro wrestling in Brazil doesn't exist. No one uses it. They use catch wrestling. Because the association between pro wrestling and catch wrestling in Brazil is but so it was so established that they just that's what they call it catch. If catch means fake, right? That's that's what they the term they use. Um, but you know, you, you, the, the Japanese were always into that, and a lot of the Japanese that were coming over, they were doing fake fights in Brazil too, Maeda included. Maeda, in fact, I think most of his fights were probably fights were probably fake because they would sell more, right? The audience didn't understand fighting. A fight can be boring to a lay audience. Uh, but these fake fights in Japan always existed, right? And they're kind of coming back. I think recently Sakuraba just had a fake match in in Japan. They did like a like a like a, a fake you know staged yeah, grappling exhibition thing. And Hickson did one with Hoyler years ago in Pride. For some reason, the Japanese audience, whether they know or not, it doesn't matter at this point. Really, they 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 do buy it. Whereas in the U.S., it's slightly different. It's interesting because the MMA crowd is I feel like it's very different from the pro wrestling crowd. Because there is pro wrestling, yes, it's huge, but yeah. the MMA crowd, the, I don't. There's a lot of crossover. I can't see something fake in the UFC, and the audience enjoying it. Whereas in Pride, I I could see that happening. Yeah, I don't see UFC fans crossing over to WWE. Yeah, I do see it going the other way though. Obviously, because that's yeah. how Brock Lesnar became such a draw. True. So I think if you're like a hardcore WWE fan, and then you see your favorite wrestler starts going to UFC, you you have to be curious at what goes Absolutely. on. Absolutely. It wouldn't go the other way. Like, Ronda. Uh, yeah. Is in UFC really, you have to find a fan like making sure he follows Ronda's pro wrestling career, no one cares. Or King Velasquez. Okay, and then no one, I didn't even know he was fighting pro wrestling. There you go. Yeah. You know, I, I it does, no one really cares. And going back to Japan, they've like uh, that Inoki Muhammad Ali fight in, in Japan. When did that take place? I don't know the year. But it was, it was, it was the same idea of the UFC. Let's present, let's put two fighters from different styles and have them fight and see who wins. So the UFC was important, and it was the right organization at the right time. I think it was necessary, right? Was it new? No way. There's nothing new about the UFC. Yeah. These fights have been going on in Japan and Brazil for, actually a friend of mine sold, sold, sent me an article a while ago. There were MMA fights in the US in the 1800s. They weren't called MMA, obviously, but they were basically no, no, no holds barred, no rules. Guys were just like, you could yeah. wrestle, you could punch, you could headbutt, and this is in the 1800s. I got to find the article. I found I, he sent it to me a, a, a while ago, and I just thought it's interesting. Like we're just, I mean, if you really want to get historical about it, you could take it back to the Greeks. Pancration. Pancration. Yeah. Then it's MMA. You know, so it's interesting to me how history is cyclical. Like it goes through. Like people get bored of one thing, they go on. It's like an arms race, and they go to the next. And then they go to the next, and then next they get bored. And then at some point they run out of things to do. Like you can't reinvent the wheel. So what do they do? They go back to square one and start yeah. all over again. I could see an audience, and I hope this doesn't happen to MMA and BJJ, but I could see an audience that is so keen on entertainment, entertain me, entertain me by at any cost, that I could see, you know, I hope this doesn't happen, but I could see something happening where fake matches become a thing again. Right, like we're kind of like going backwards in a sense. Like, oh, we know it's fake, but it's fun. You know, imagine we do a coordinated match where you do a flying arm bar, and then I get out and I do a, you know, heel hook on you, and you get out, and everything's coordinated. 
And I would hate if that were the case. But I wouldn't be surprised if that started happening at some point because you have people that are so adamant about being entertained at any cost. Oh, I thought you were going to go a different direction, a darker one. I thought, since we're going history, I thought you said we're going to go back to the gladiator days where it's death. <laughs> oh, have you seen the <laughs> Russian? Where they, do? they have like one where they have like medieval armor and those, weapons. Those it's so, actually funny. It, it yeah. is so crazy how they... And it's not just... First of all, the Russians are totally insane. <laughs> like, have you seen... They yeah. have team MMA where they have five on yeah. five. It's and incredible. They, like, yeah. First of all, five <laughs> on five is already bad enough, right? Because, you know, yeah. and the strategy always holds. Where as soon as one person loses, the whole team gets beat. Because yeah. you get a double team, a triple team, and then, you know, you, of course. you just get destroyed. But as if that wasn't enough, they do obstacle course MMA. I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> Where no. it, it looks like you're looking at what uh, is those old like Nickelodeon game shows where they have yeah, or yeah, like yeah. The gladiators, um, yeah. where they have these giant American, foam podiums. What's it called? The American, American gladiators. Right? Gladiator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they have these giant foam podiums, and they start on top of these little giant foam things, and they start fighting there. So you see people fly down. And it's like how are people not dying like daily with this stuff? You know, it looks nuts. And you'll see someone yeah. gets thrown from like one story to the next, and then getting but stomped. It's the way entertaining down. though. Like that's the thing though. I I could see myself watching that and, and laughing. Not I. I mean, I watch the UFC. To me, it's like it's serious. It's not yeah. never funny, you know. But I'd watch something like that. And like when I saw Medieval MMA. And it's a, it's a ring. I don't know if you guys have seen it or yeah. not, but it's a ring. And there's, I think it was five on five. And they're all in medieval armor. And they're just, I don't know what the rules are, but it's just, it's hilarious to watch. Um, you know, it's, it's, Russia, I, I think there's like a series of videos on YouTube. And I think it's like only in Russia or something like that. And yeah. it's just like people doing crazy shit. It's just like crazy stuff happened over and over. They edit it into like a long <laughs> five minute video. Of like crazy shit happening nonstop. I've seen many versions yeah. of them. There's like infinite. I think it's yeah. like a bear driving in the car. Normal. <laughs> like, you know, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Tanks rolling down the streets. So it's uh, wild. But what's interesting about the, <laughs> about the medieval MMA is that apparently in the actual uh, fights there with swords, there was a ton of grappling because the armor is very effective. Right, it's kind of not like in the movies where, like, if you're wearing full plate armor and I sack you with a sword, I'm I always slice thought right about that. You. Yeah, how do you cut through armor? It doesn't don't. work that way. So they tend because that's why they, they say you have to find the chink in the armor, right? Essentially, like you have different plates, so you can't go through the middle of it. You have to be able to slide in between plates yeah. in certain areas, you know. And generally, like the sides are weaker; they're easier yeah. to get into because of the way the armbands. I might be butchering this, so if you're a historian and you're getting upset. I'm just basically saying that there is a lot more grappling involved because essentially you're just going to be banging into each other. No, and, that, and the armor, besides the steel plate, has then reinforced leather banding or whatnot. So there, or chainmail. Chainmail. So there's padding as well. Yeah. So that's why the, you'll watch some of these medieval fights and they're smacking the crap at each other in the head. I'm like, in my mind, it's like, oh, that's like an instant concussion. But it's like, no, they kind of have like Football helmet, yeah, like yeah, batting, they, you know, so they can eat some shots. I could see that, and I imagine the grappling would be a big component in medieval warfare because you would get exhausted after a while. You're walking, okay, think about swinging a sword or a hammer or an axe with nothing, no, no weight, you know, for like two minutes and see how tired you get. Yeah. Imagine, add the armor and the adrenaline and the fact that there's someone in front of you, sometimes five people trying to kill you. You gas out, and I don't care how conditioned you are. You would gas out in three minutes. 
Yeah. And then after that, what are you going to do? You probably drop your weapon because you can't even pick it up and you start just like leaning on people. And it's, it turns into a grappling match with armor on, yeah. which sounds like a horrible idea to me. Like, I just want to take it off. Like, can I grapple without this armor? Because <laughs> you can't, I mean, you can kind of hurt them. I never understood why, like, medieval warfare, like, everyone's like the sword, the sword. Like, to me, the sword is like the worst weapon. Because you're right, the armor you can't get through. Unless you're, you're the people you're fighting have no armor, then it's different. Yeah. But in like if you're fighting a knight, a mace would make a lot more sense. An axe would make a lot more sense. Maybe like a blunt weapon, yeah. Maybe a spear. I don't know if a spear would go through armor. Probably not. I just don't see. Yeah, I just don't like the the sword is like kind of like almost like useless against armor. I feel like. You know, on those full plate armor, from my understanding, yeah, it's scary. But then again, most people weren't wearing that because it's expensive and costly. So it was like. Most of yeah. most medieval warfare probably took place like knights killing peasants. Like that was probably <laughs> unrecorded. A lot of unrecorded history there because you know what are you gonna do? You're a peasant. You got a pitchfork. Yeah. yeah Ever I, play one of those games where like you're a knight and you got to fight the other person's arms a bunch of pitchforks and you just a lot of video games are like that. It's like so much easier to you know. It, 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 that's exactly what's happening. You just like you know butcher them like nothing. Yeah. What a different. Uh... Era. I mean, like whenever I watch movies like Braveheart or something, and you see those giant battlefields, and you just think from the perspective, I'm just this one little dude with my pitchfork against yeah. a legion. Like, how the hell do you think you're gonna get out of this thing alive? You know, it's, it seems totally nuts. You know? No, it, I think that back in the day, an 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 army with knights in armor would be a terrifying thing. Movies make it look like, oh, it's an equal, equal playing field. I think in reality, be like, you're doomed. Like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, you can't. Over, you can't. Like, you're you're done. You're you cannot win. Like, one night will take out ten people. Yeah. Right? Unless you could, you know, on a horse. I mean, like with I mean, drag them down from the horse. I guess would be the only strategy. But like, cavalry would be would have been terrifying. You know, it must have been. Yeah. I, went, I was reading a book a while ago, and it was talking about how the transition from the, 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 the cavalry fighting style into modern warfare, right? Where, you know, machine guns were you know, being used during World War I. And one reason why the Brits were having such a hard time defeating the Germans was because the Germans abandoned the cavalry. So this is not working. Let's get a machine gun out. This is a much better, this is a weapon that nullifies cavalry. Where the British, out of their, either their pride or... Um, you know, previous experiences fighting other people who didn't have machine guns, they kind of stuck to the old ways. It's kind of like Blockbuster trying to beat Netflix. You know, yeah. It's one of those things, like, it's not going to happen, my friend. Yeah. You're going to lose that fight. But the Brits were adamant about trying to defeat the Germans with cavalry. They insisted for a long time. And at some point, they finally stopped. But it was one of the reasons why, for a minute there, Germany actually had the, the overhand in the war. That's crazy. Yeah. It's funny that people stick to strategies that aren't working. Like we, we, we all do it. You know, we make yeah. fun of Blockbuster trying to, you know, can't keep up with Netflix. But I think we all do it. I have my old ways of doing stuff. And I just, like, refuse to change, even though, like, I see that, okay, I know there's a better way. Probably is an easier way, but it's too hard to change. It's just easier to stick to what you know. Yeah, and you, like you said, you have a kind of a, a attachment to it. And there's a, there might be an ego challenge involved, you know, because... What I always tell people, my perspective is, change is difficult, not because the actual changes. The change is simple. It's instantaneous when you decide to change the way you do something. It's letting go of the fact that you've been doing something wrong for X amount of years, yeah. and now you're going to admitting and admitting, well, I was wrong, and, I, and essentially I'm stupid for like 20 years. So now I'm going to accept this change. No, I rather believe that I'm not stupid. 
that there's merit to what I've been doing. Because otherwise, how do I look back at these 20 years and look and, and That's be, a good point. you know, like, I feel a lot of people hang on to their mistakes for that reason. Because the moment that they change, it's admitting there was a mistake made. And like a lot of people's ego won't support that. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Because I can see even from my speaking for myself, I can see like, yeah, that thing that makes a lot of sense. It's too hard to admit when you're wrong about something. Especially if it's something that, you know, you've been, any kind of mistake you've been making for a long time. I'm trying to think of an example in jiu-jitsu here. I'm sure there's a few, you know, where you're going for a pass in a certain way and you just don't want to change because that's the way you've always done it and like someone's doing something different. But I think it, it's interesting. That's where the new generation of people, I give, you know, young kids hard time all the time because some, to me they're just like, you guys are spoiled as it gets. And I do sound like grandpa, but I don't care. Because it's how I feel, you know. They think their millennials are very, very spoiled. And everyone wants to get rich without working. Like, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. And I hate that shit. Like, get to work, man. You got to grind. You're not going to, you know. But I think the one thing that, you know, throughout history, the younger generations have always done is that they always think of easier ways of doing things. Better ways. More efficient ways. Because as we get older, we get set in our own ways. And that's why we need a young 20-year-old kid who's going to challenge your De La Hiva sweep and yeah. come up with a Durian bowl. Because if these things aren't happening, we're stuck. So in a lot of ways, younger generations, by challenging the old ways, they're reinventing the sport. They're reinventing the art. And this happens everywhere. Technology, yeah. every sport, every endeavor, really, look at better ways of doing something. Whereas older generations get set in their own ways. Old ways. You're absolutely correct. And I think, uh, well, the signs of people who are, who are very intelligent and very wise are ones that constantly are adapting, you know, that they never get set. But I think for the most part, most people at a certain point, they're like, they feel like they're done learning or they're done like innovating. Like I'm just, I've made my, my castle and now I'm going to stay here. Yeah. And like, even though that castle kind of protects you, it also limits you because you can't grow beyond the walls. Right. So I think intellectually it's kind of the same thing. Like you're, you have a way of thinking and it's worked for you and it's achieved a certain level of success. But then a, at a certain point, you stop, and now you cement yourself. You plant your roots, so to speak. But at that point, you can't really grow much further. You know, whereas someone who's young, or maybe who lived in the castle, like your kids and whatnot, they're like, okay, this is nice, but I want more now. Yeah, like, the other ones are able to push the envelope, even though you might be thinking like, you don't know what you're doing, kid. But like, you need someone who thinks outside of that box to be able to expand it. Because you're you're stuck in your ways and you're not going to change. I think that a lot of like technology companies they <clears throat> they want to hire young kids because they have that either way it's the the ambition or the vision, the plasticity of the brain when you're younger. Maybe I think I think that when you're younger you're more creative in a lot of ways. Uh, it's weird how this happens. As you know, I'm not as old as I'm going to sound right now. I'm 38, but um, I remember when I was like my early 20s or like even before that. When I started at 16. When someone showed me a move, like visually, I can conceptualize, I could absorb that move and much, much, I, 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 and nothing was difficult. When someone showed me something, it was always like, got it, like Neo. Like my brain was absorbing information so much easier. As you get older, it gets harder to absorb that for some reason. That's why I think that it has to do something, I don't know what happens, but like language is like that. The older you get, the harder it is to learn a language, right? Yeah. And, and when I was younger, like, and, and I never had a hard time learning the move, Dave. It was always like, got it, got it, got it. There was no such thing as hip throws. I never got hip throws. <laughs> but, you know, like now, every now and then, I see some of these, like, cr 
crab rye transitions at the back and back to a and bolu. And I'm like, wait a second, slow that down. And I, I have to watch it like four or five times. And it's, it's harder for me to absorb it. And it's not just because it's more sophisticated. That's not the reason. I really believe that's something to do with, as you get older, your brain is just less of a sponge. You know, it's harder to retain that information or make sense of it. Or I, can't, I don't have, I'm not, I mean, maybe your, your, your girlfriend will have a better explanation. She's a psychiatrist, probably studies a lot. Yeah. You know, knows a lot about plasticity of the brain. I would say from a, from a philosophical standpoint, if you've read the book, um, The Four Agreements. I've heard of it. Great book from uh, Del Miguel Ruiz. Uh, it's essentially, there's two books I think everybody should read in life. That's one of them. And I believe that's a good handbook, essentially, for teaching you how to live life uh, stress-free or as stress-free as possible. And then the other book is Think and Grow Rich by um, oh my God, Napoleon Hill. That's a success. What's it called? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And that's a book for success. And even though it says rich and you think, oh, it's about money, it doesn't tell you how to stock tips or yeah. how to make money. It just tells you how to be successful. And it's got 13 principles that teach you how to do that. But uh, with the four agreements, the start of the book essentially says that when you're first born and you, you first achieve consciousness, essentially there is infinite possibilities of what you could do in life because you don't know the rules. You, you, know, you essentially are like a blank slate. So like a child, you know, a child sees somebody flying in a movie, like, oh, I could fly. Yeah. They don't know they can't until like they try. Yeah. So infinite possibilities creates infinite, well, near infinite uh, imagination. Right? You can imagine just about anything. As you get older, you start learning things. And every time you learn something, essentially you create an agreement with yourself uh, that this is not possible or this is possible. And the, the analogy he uses is like a door that's wide open when you're a child. It's full of light. And then as you get older, the door starts to close. Because yeah. all the possibilities are starting to get narrow. Because now you know, well, I can't fly. You know, and I can't play piano. You know, I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, so it's, I think that could factor into like, how come as you get older, you start losing imagination or you stop uh, being able to be creative because you've learned so much, it's limited you now because your knowledge kind of burdens you. No, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas when you're younger, you know, like, why can't you do it? I guess he said one of the experiments, if you ask a kid, can you play the piano? He's like, oh, let me find a piano. If you ask like an older person, like, can you play a piano? It's gonna be yes or no. Yeah. They played it or they haven't played it, and they say no, I don't know how to play it. Yeah. Right. So I think there's something more adventurous about a child's nature too, where they're excited to see the world in a way that we're not. My daughters wake up at six a.m. You know, they wake up at six a.m. They, they're excited about. They don't want to go to sleep either. You know, and. I'm not like I want to stay in bed for as long as I can, you know. Like I'm not that excited about the world anymore, right? I think that some either as we get older, my frustrations and some, you know, you, life is about. There's a lot of suffering in life too, and there's a lot of frustration that comes from that, and that creates all sorts of other issues. And I think people at some point they start like becoming less adventurous, right? And we start losing that for whatever reason. And I think that there's some fears that are created at some point. Oh, I failed at piano, so I'm not going to try the guitar. You know, probably yeah. the best example, but like, 
you know, I, I think people start like getting into their heads that they can't do stuff. Whereas you're right, if you have a child, you play the piano, the, the, the child like, yeah, give them the piano. They go like, bah, bah, bah. in their head, they're playing. They don't know how to play, like in the sense that, you know, but like they would play the piano in the way that, yeah, I'm playing with the piano. Yeah. Right, but child is not, the children don't get scared and intimidated about just about anything. No. You know, like, that's why it's like trying stuff. I'm not talking about like, you know, I think everyone's terrified of spiders. But <clears throat> like, you know, they're giving things a go. Like you can't, you can't intimidate my daughters into not trying a new game. Not trying a new instrument, not trying a sport. Not, it's just no. I'll do it. Yeah. You know, and that we, we lose that, I guess, as we get older. I think it's a learned behavior, right? Uh, yeah. Pretty much based on the responses of their life. Like uh-huh. if they went to do the school play and then they got humiliated, you know, then it's gonna exactly. Yeah. Then now that door closed, yeah, right? You, yeah, yeah, you you you. It, that's exactly that you give the example. You get humiliated at something. You you try out. Uh, I'll give an example. I I did a hapkido competition, and when I was like eight nine years old, it was the first martial art I've ever practiced, and it didn't go well. I got my butt kicked, but for some reason, I I, I like I felt like people were making fun of me, and it kind of created a mental block in my head in a lot of ways. Like I didn't want to do anything competitive for a long time. It was only when I found jujitsu that I wanted to do things competitively again. I did one mountain bike race when I was like sixteen. I think that was it. I just didn't want anything to do things competitive. And then at some point, I kind of snapped out of it. But I, I remember for a long time, it's just because I associated competition with humiliation. Yeah. And I think some people just never, like, jiu-jitsu kind of saved me in that way, whereas now, like, I love competition. Uh, but it becomes a block for a lot of people, I guess. For sure. You know, um, I mean, man, before I started doing wrestling and whatnot, I was dreadfully shy, extremely. And the same year that I started wrestling, I remember I read an English paper in front of a 20 person class and I had to stand up and hold the paper and you, all you could hear is the rattling of the paper because my hands were shaking like, that's funny it's, it's so embarrassing like looking back oh my god like I was just reading like one paragraph yeah. I was just so dreadfully shy you know and why the fear of judgment uh, because that's what pretty much everybody's worried about yeah. for the most part right like in social situations you fear you're going to be judged negatively, right? Like people are going to look at you, oh, he's a loser, he's stupid, he's weak, he will, you know, fill in the blank, right? Yeah. Whatever you're scared about. But like it's a fear of other people judging you. I think what competition starts bringing out of you, particularly the martial arts, is that you stop focusing on everybody else and you start focusing on yourself. And now once you're your own judge then, and you don't care about what other people think, it's very liberating. Because then you can just do whatever you want. And you don't have to worry about external like voices. So you've got to learn how to not give a shit. Yeah. Basically. And I, I, I and I'm good at that for the most part. But there are parts of me that worry about what people think, you know. Um, you know, some things more than others. But for, for the most part, like I I try live like that. I have that in my head and like for the most part I don't care. But I think there's always some things that we care about, what people are gonna think. The trick is to get rid of that because those yeah. are the things that hold you back. It really is fear of judgment. Sure. Right. What are people going to think if I get it wrong, if I fail, if I lose, if I look stupid, if I sound stupid? I was that guy, too. I was very shy. It's interesting you say that because I think your story of like hearing like the, 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 the paper, paper rattling. Yeah, yeah. Not that bad, but like probably like a, a little bit better than you. But I was super shy and I didn't like to be around, like talk to like large groups of people. Like standing in front of a classroom was terrifying. Yeah. And now to the point, we do the same thing. We teach seminars. It's like. It's second nature. Yeah. Like there's not my heart rate does not go up one bit. I guarantee you, but I can get in front of an audience of 
50 people or 5,000 people. It makes no difference to me. I have no issues talking to people. But I truly believe that Jiu-Jitsu did that. Maybe maybe teaching class, I guess, got rid of that, solved that problem because you're talking to people. You have to teach class. Yeah. It's an audience of like 20, 30 people. You gotta wait. And then it just becomes second nature. It was a great school to, you know, lose that fear. Well, I, I, the thing I learned about it, because it's what you said, like when you start doing jujitsu and you start teaching classes, I don't know, for me it was pretty easy when I started teaching class, right? And like, how come it's easy to do it in this context where I'm in the mat teaching people? But when I was in school and I was doing a presentation, I was terrified, right? And the difference was confidence. Right, and I think most part, like <laughs> when you're in school and you're doing a presentation, I think most people are very unconfident in what they're doing. At least me, because I was BSing point. a lot of them. <laughs> you're trusting memory a lot. You don't understand yeah, exactly, the topic. You're right. relying on memory. You're relying on memory, yeah. so you're like, I'm talking about something I really don't know. You know, I'm just pretending that I know for Let's the context. No one notices that I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You're thinking about that. Yeah, don't ask me the right <laughs> question because you're gonna nail me. You know? <laughs> but like when you're in, the, and you're in yeah. your element in jujitsu, yeah. it's like you can't bust me, right? Yeah, because I'm very confident what I'm doing, and so much so that if you did find something, I'm genuinely interested. Like, okay, how did you know? Like, you it, said it. Yeah, it's not gonna bother me because I don't feel weak. I'm not unconfident about my, my martial arts. I'm very confident about it. Yeah. You know, so if you had something that brought something out of me, now we're going to learn something together or yeah. learn something, right? But like when we're in school and you're doing presentations on like two days notice and you're jerry-rigging something together, you're not confident at all. And the consequences seem to be a lot more stark when you're being, you're being judged by grades, A, B, C, D, E, F, That's a right? really good point. I think a big part of the shyness came like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's interesting. So, like, if you yeah. know what you're talking about, you're not you're not as shy. Like, yeah, that's why, yeah. like, if you if you ever want to get a kid out of their shell, you talk to them about what they like, right? Like, uh, actually, one of the guys that was working in one of my houses, uh, he was telling me about. I think I mentioned it before about his son. His son was, you know, very shy. He didn't have friends and whatnot. And uh, he was talking to his son on the phone, and the, and I had given him some advice about uh, weightlifting. His son, and then the son heard about it. He goes, "Oh, is that David? I mean, can I talk to him?" I'm like, "I'm talking to a kid I never met before." But what do I talk to him about? About weightlifting, because I know that's what he likes. And then he was asking me all sorts of questions, stuff. He, he didn't seem shy, right? But I'm speaking to him on his element, right? It's just like if I was going to talk to somebody who's a nerd who played game. I'm not saying it negatively, but who was playing video games all the time. If Dave, I put we, a, we played Dungeons and Dragons when we were kids. Yeah, yeah. We can, we're, I'm nerd, super we're, nerd, yeah. we're nerds. Yeah, if you say I just fine. built a new computer there, I turn the camera around, you see it looks ridiculous. All right. But um, if I try to talk to them, that person about girls or dating or social stuff, they might be like, I don't know. They shit lock up. There, right? Yeah, yeah, but let me talk to me about, you know, whatever video game. The, man, there's one that's famous. I don't even know now. I think people have been using this trick with me my whole life. I just realized <laughs> I'm the awkward guy because like, I go, they talk I, about what you like, right? And then when all you, the time, and then you're comfortable. It's like, oh, yeah. I know this one. Like this yeah. is the one that I got. I can talk about this. Without, oh, it's like know. my life's been flashing before my eyes right now. I, I, I remember like so many situations. I'm normally in the jujitsu MMA bubble, right? So I'm yeah. always confident. People know who I am. Every now and then, I'm in an environment where no one knows a thing about MMA. No one knows a thing about BJJ. No one cares. Yeah. And I'm always super uncomfortable, right? Just the dynamics just change dramatically. Plus, like, maybe I'm spoiled. I'm used to being the boss. Yeah. I'm used to, I'm in the gym all the time. Like, people know who I am and everyone respects me. You go to an environment, no one knows who you are. 
you don't get that. It's a different kind of feel, yeah. it's, which is good. You, you should get that reality check. You know, like sometimes you get in your head and like start thinking you're, you know, more than you actually are. So I, I like to throw myself out there. But it's interesting because I think people notice that I don't know how to talk about anything but fighting. <laughs> and they immediately say, oh, do you like, how long you been doing UFC? And I'm like, you know, you have no idea about anything about the sport, but at least like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Now you can, you know, I can actually be part of the party. But I think that people that get too into things like jujitsu and maybe come like that. Like, I don't, uh, there are very other things. I mean, I like, you know, I like my books. I like history. I like some other topics. You know, I talk about politics all day. But for the most part, like, I'm not good at small talk. I don't, I, I'm just not good. It's like people start small talking me at a party. I'm like, no fucking idea what to say. Everyone laughs. I'll laugh. Like, I'll be the last one laughing. I'm that guy. I, I can't even keep up. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, because that's exactly what you should do to bring someone out of their show, I guess. It's just make them comfortable. Yeah, just get them talking about what they like to talk about. Yeah. What they're into, what they're passionate about. And then you can draw them out of their, their bubble. And once they're out, you'll find then you can pull them into other things that they normally wouldn't get into because they would be afraid of being judged. But now that you've already seen that they're that they have competency in one area, they're, they're not as shy to learn something about something else, particularly if they're competent in something that you're not. Yeah. Because now they're like, oh, I'm an expert in this. So it's okay for someone to know something more about something else. Yeah. Right? I mean, I hang around my girlfriend all the time. She's a psychiatrist, very smart. Like, and she's not like your typical doctor like she knows about everything and she she's like she has diagnosed three different people in my family who my dad who ended up having cancer that nobody knew before she figured it out my grandmother had uh some uh, imbalance that doctors weren't able to figure out and she figured out over the phone like she's like i call her house like <laughs> dr house because she couldn't make these diagnoses up like out of thin air but uh if i try to talk to her about medical stuff and Try to act like I know what I'm talking about. It's ridiculous, you know. Like I know uh, nothing. But yeah, she'll pick you apart. Yeah. Yeah, and like oh, occasionally I go with her. Like uh, she goes to you know office meetings or whatever. A lot of doctors, and I'm coming in here, martial arts guy. I mean, I have an engineer degree, but like I know so little about electrical engineering, even though <laughs> I graduated. I, I was top of my class, but I was just one of those guys that could memorize things exceptionally well, you know. That's but. Funny. It's serious because there's stuff going on here that like wiring problems. Like, yeah. uh, like, oh, engineer. Like, isn't yeah. this your what thing? You do, yeah. like, that was like 20 years ago, and I didn't really know it. Yeah. <laughs> I just I could learn anything fast. I like uh, um, I like that like meeting people. Like sometimes like I'll be like going back to like a you know a new environment, right? Which yeah. I enjoy doing. I like the challenge. It's always easy for me because I can be the guy bombarding you with questions too. If you have an interesting job. Yeah. Like, I can bombard your girlfriend with questions all day. She'd get, like, please stop asking me questions, right? The other day I was out for dinner. I was at a seminar, and there was, like, sitting across the table was a doctor and a physicist right oh. across the table from me. I'm like, oh, Interesting. we were talking all night. I just would I just wouldn't stop asking these guys questions, right, things that I don't know, because I'm generally interested in things and a little about these things, but they're very interesting to me, right? Yeah. So it has to do with, like, what kind of environment you're into. Like, that's the other thing. I think sometimes we end up, putting ourselves in environments where you're not we don't have anything to learn anything about it's like that old saying you know if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room yeah right and i i actually really enjoy being in an environment where like i would love to go to a party like that with all the doctors i just probably worry a little bit i mean asking a lot of stupid questions but to me they're not stupid because i don't know them right but i can literally just like bombard someone with questions about the medical field all day i love the topic i just 
Yeah, I always tell it's, people, this, this, is, this is a, a thing I always say at every seminar. Like when people start asking questions, I'm like, look, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people. Okay, ask your question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, no, but I mean, you know, uh, I think you have to be able to humble yourself, right? Just like we do in the in the martial arts when you're going to learn a seminar. You're going to go under someone and teach, I mean, be taught, you know, or attend a seminar. You don't want to be the guy that's, oh, you know, uh, judging or second-guessing the coach or whatnot. You should go in there with an open mind. Okay, show me what you know, and I'm going to just shut up and absorb everything you're saying. And then I can determine afterwards, was this legit knowledge I can use, or is this stuff that maybe it's not going to use? That's, yeah, that's a super important ability to, to, to develop. I feel like some people lose that. And it's interesting to me because... I, I brag about having an eye for fighters. Like yeah. I, and, and I think that a lot of times, whether I realize it or not, is I'm looking at like personality traits, and one of them is curiosity. I noticed that, like for some, I got some, some MMA guys that come to the gym. I started an MMA program again recently. And some of the guys are coming in, and I just feel this guy, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to help this guy. It's like you tell them to do something, and they're like immediately either challenging you and telling you to do it different, or that this way is better. Or this is how they, there's a reason why he can't do it my way, right? For example, and I'm like, okay. And I always notice that the ones that are all constantly making progress, they go, they're really paying attention, and then you see them trying what you just showed them, right? Whether it works or not, it's a different story, but they're constantly trying. And I think that's why one of the most fundamental, uh, you know, aspects that you know any uh, aspiring fighter can have is the ability to be constantly curious. They're always curious about everything. You don't have to agree with everything. You can have like, okay, you know, you do your Kimura your way, I do it my way. And that's fine. That's normal. But like you have that curiosity of going, what is that? Like why this way? Why not this way? Ask the question and see if you can relate to it enough to absorb new knowledge, right? Versus that, that guy is full of pride. Like, no, I do it this way. Yeah. And they're set in their ways. A lot of instructors are like that. This is how you do a De La Hiva. Imagine if people were doing that, that never changed, right? Imagine that people weren't challenging that. We wouldn't have the Rimbolos now, right? So you, you need to be that. Like we're going back to the curious mind of a child. you got to be uh, questioning, not in a disrespectful way, but the back of your mind has got to be a why. Yeah. Why this way? Why, okay, what are you doing, right? The, the exchange of information you're just telling me about a second ago. That's so important for people to keep. I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I've mentioned this before too, but I've had... White belts. I think I told you one of my guys showed me video moves from a pro wrestling Japanese game uh, that I use and it works. Yeah, you know. But like, if I would have been a little more arrogant, like, like, oh look, then the guy told me straight up, I saw this in a Japanese pro wrestling game. Let me show you. You immediately disqualify. Yeah, I would have been. Uh, no, don't waste my time. Yeah. Don't waste my time, white belt. Like, I would have lost a move that I've used a lot. You know. Yeah. So, like you said, it's just being open minded. Let everything come in. And then process and then decide, okay, is this useful information or not? Because at the end of the day, it's useful to learn it, to know that it exists. Right. If you don't even open up the possibility, then you just shut that door. Right. So knowing something doesn't work is just as valuable or something. You said something more valuable, but knowing what does work. So like when I go to a class to be taught, I listen to everything, even though like, I remember you with, I think the first class I did under you here, uh, I think I was doing the seminar when I first came in, but I went to one of your classes and you were just teaching the basic stack. Yeah. 
I'm like, okay, I know this pass. I've done it a lot of times, but let me see how Robert does it. Yeah. Because I want to see what's different. Because I know there's going to be something different. And there was something that you did different that was beneficial, that I helped make yeah. the pass better. But if I would have been like, oh, I know this already. Ugh, okay. And then yeah. swing around. I, I see people do that. Like when they when the instructor oh, teaches something basic. Yeah. yeah, they say like, oh, okay, they're tuning off yeah. and they're, they're talking about, you know, chatting. I'm like, if you're not pulling this off, hundred percent. Every time you should be tuning in, and even if you do, you should because there might be something that you missed. Or you're going to teach one day, and you want to have the options, give the options to your students. Yeah. So if you do something differently, I still want to learn, even if I don't use it for myself, because the way you do it might be the way that's going to make more sense to my student when I teach it. And it's so interesting you say that, but the the guy you just described is exactly the guy. It doesn't matter how talented he is. It doesn't matter how much he trains how disciplined he is, how all the things are in place. But there's that little component there, that deep, like way in there, the guy is arrogant. Yeah. He may be humble in the layer, in the outer layer, the surface, but deep down, he's so arrogant. He's like, you can't teach me, I got this, right? And I, it's interesting, but I get that from Purple Belts, which suggests to me that it really is a personality trait and it's like deeply seated. It's not because he actually knows, it's because in the back of his mind, he thinks, I got this. Right, he's like this, it's like this supreme sense of overconfidence that they don't really see as overconfident. I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's lack of confidence that is guarded by a display of overconfidence. Yeah. Right, because I'm very confident in, if you're gonna ask me something about the Kimura, I'm extremely confident, right? Yeah. But I'm still willing to listen to anything. Yeah, if yeah. someone's gonna teach a Kimura class, I'm like, okay. Let me watch. Yeah, you yeah. know, like if I was gonna listen to somebody else's Kimura thing, and then let me see what they're doing, yeah. and see if I can find something that I could use. You know, what? Or, or maybe something that I can afterwards tell this guy, hey, adjust it this way. You know, like you, you could, if you want, if you're open to it, I can show you how to make this a little bit you know, better. Um, but if I was unconfident with myself, and I saw like or somebody teaching a Kimura, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to listen to this crap. This is my game. I yeah. know this. To me, that's showing, like, I'm not that confident in it, so I have to shut it off completely. Because if I learn something from you, what does that mean about me? I've been living yeah. a lie. I'm not the Kimura master, right? Yeah, like, somebody yeah, else yeah. can want me. But, like, you see, so I, I see somebody who shuts off, their ego's a little fragile. Right? Like, well, they, they feel like they know so much, they become uncoachable. And like you said, those type of people... You can't do much with them. And it, it makes me question why are they here then? Because if you're not willing to listen to everything your coach is going to tell you and you're going to start second guessing him, yeah, man, that's not the guy you want to roll with. You got to find a new coach, dude. If you don't you trust find your coach. coach. Yeah, you yeah, got to go. You, you, I agree. That would be like going to war with somebody that you're, and you're putting their life in your hands and you second guess their, like the general, yeah, and you second guess them all the time. Like, dude. Don't go to war with this guy. Yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> he's no, going to give you right. strategies that you're not going to second guess. He's going to cost you. Now that you put it this way, I want to add one thing. I think I want to reward what I said. They're not, it's not that just they're beyond confident or overconfident. They're a bit delusional. There's an element of delusion there, right? Like you just, you're, you're, you believe your lie so much. You've convinced yourself and you're so comfortable around that little lie that any information that tries to penetrate through that lie and go like, this is BS, you guard yourself against it. Yes. You yeah. shut yourself, you put this big shield and you go, no, 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 no. This is my, like, you are questioning my entire 
being here. This yeah. is my character, my personality that you you, and it's too difficult to confront it, right? Like, yes. I, and I've met people like that, and they're so set in a way, so confident about some things, and that just the the, the if you begin to question it, like they get really angry. They don't like to hear it. Like it's just like it's they have a protection mechanism against their. It's a fragile ego, I guess. It is yeah. insecurity. You're right. Like deep down in insecurity, and but like they they wrap it up with a lot of delusion. Like they'll distort reality to believe. I have one specific person, in <laughs> but they'll distort reality to make themselves feel good about how the world is. And it's like, but you're living in this alternate universe. Like this is not how world is or how people perceive you or who you are yeah but yeah it's it, it, there's something they, it, people like that sometimes there's something off about them too for sure you know and i've seen it and you've seen it and yeah. it comes around a lot and unfortunately not everybody does the martial arts is what i would consider a martial artist right like to me someone who's a martial artist truly is always embracing new knowledge right yeah. they're always willing to learn to get better it doesn't matter where the information comes from or how it was made, it's like, if it works, let's apply this so we can grow. You know, if you're worried about who the information is coming from or how it was disseminated, then you're more concerned about uh, appearances. And again, I think it's a more of a vanity thing, right? Like, that's why I like Jeet Kune Do so much. The philosophy to me was very appealing. It's just like, learn anything that works, we use. Like, that's practical. That's as yeah. pragmatic as you can get. Correct, <laughs> yeah. You're not trying to say, well, it has to come from this guy because he has a lineage and, you know, like, no, let's um, let's cut the crap, right? Like, let's yeah. use what works and it's going to be effective in a real combat situation. But uh, if you're worried about people watching you, like, I, I'm thinking this thing, I've, I've seen people that there's a seminar going on and they are actively showing disinterest in what's going on because other people are watching them. Right, and that they look, they were interested. That means they're learning from this guy. He's a right. I, I've, I've caught that before. Yeah, yeah right. I've so like, they that. have to show like utter I'm disdain. I'm too cool. Yeah, like, oh, this guy is cooler than yeah. everything. He doesn't need to learn from this yeah. guy. We're bringing in for a seminar or whatnot, right? So, uh, I, since you just made a comment a second about Jeet Kune Do, and I want to take you back to that because I want to ask you something. Yeah, I I like that. I, that's exactly how I see things. To me, this old school, new school debate is retarded. Does it work? It's all that matters, yeah. right? It's the only relevant question in martial arts is does it work, right? And if it's working, absorb it. guy like Bruce Lee, I feel like he was ahead of his game, ahead of his time for sure. Like he was, you know, he, he, he saw that ground was, a, you know, essential component. And I, I, probably, I believe he probably was a very intelligent martial artist, you know, a variety of different ways. There's no way, in my opinion, he could have created a... MMA as it is today, no matter how much thought and how much genius he may have had, he could have not had done it, have done without, this MMA could not exist without a laboratory like UFC, because yeah. it's a trial, a place for trial and error. Like your experience, no matter how much of a genius you are, or how much experience you actually have, you cannot account for every single little possible situation in a lifetime. Yeah. A place like the UFC comes along, comes along, and it's like the combined experience of hundreds, thousands of fighters. Just everyone's, you know, they're everyone's adding something. Everyone's adding something to that, 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 that. And even it's just the error. The error is a lesson, right? Yes. Like this doesn't work, and then everyone's watching it doesn't work, and it never works. It never works. It never works. It can't. They get tweeted out, right? It gets cut out of the equation. But you know, someone comes along, they do something, and it's working. It's consistently working. It's 
working more than the other way people are doing things, it gets absorbed. So it's a selection process. Do you think that it would be possible to ever create an efficient martial art or an efficient set of techniques? Um, and this, uh, and I'm talking about, like, imagine, like, your Kimura game, for example, yeah. right? Could you have done that just by thinking about it without yeah. practical experience? No, I don't think so. I yeah. think that's pretty much for everything. Like, you're, okay. in order to be able to put something that's practical, that works, without field trials, it seems ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous, yeah. It would be the equivalent of trusting a scientist to make a, a serum, like to cure some disease, without ever testing it. Yeah. It's just, okay, here's the first batch. Go for it, bro. Go for it, yeah. <laughs> like, Inject what? yourself with it. Like, yeah. <laughs> What's the first thing? Has this been yeah. tested before? Like, yeah. no, we don't test things. No. We just do them. Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's nuts, and, and right? The, yeah, this is why, to me, like, yeah. the trial and error of being on the mats every day you know, you learn jiu-jitsu. You don't learn jiu-jitsu by thinking about jiu-jitsu. I think it's important exercise to think about it. But you, the way you learn jiu-jitsu is by failing. I think failing yeah. is a failing is a key word here. It's not by winning because winning is that pat on the back. I did so good. I'm yeah. awesome. I did. I was flawless today. Losing is how you teach jiu-jitsu. You yeah. fail. You learn a way how not to do it. You just close that door. You move on to the next one, right? And I just don't see you creating any kind of methodology without practice. And like sometimes, like, you know, people talk like, oh, the, the theory without the practice. Like, in, in philosophy, they do this all the time. It's like, what is that? Like, it's just a bunch of fucking words, man. Does yeah. it work in reality? No. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's just not interesting to me. I am, like, I'm, like, all about, like, that's why I love the UFC. It's one of the, it's the best things that's ever happened in martial arts. It's like, right there, guys, all the stuff that you, all this, the stuff you've been practicing, you thought was going to work, put it in the, in the cage. Let's yeah. see if it works. And it doesn't. We know what works now. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's what you need. And that's that's why there's been such a growth in the martial arts now because we have the now a testing field where we can go out and see what works and what doesn't. Because yeah. before, everybody thought their own thing was great, right? Everything. The karate guys thought karate was excellent. You know, wrestlers thought their thing. And it wasn't until we brought them into the testing field and now we could see, oh, you know what? It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. It's, not, it's just like... Uh, I have, and you know, I think we talked about before, that how we can dream stuff up. And we have like dream moves. I call it like dream jujitsu. Like, yeah. like, oh, I can see this will work. I'm like, okay. But then when I actually go and try, I'm like, oh, it can't work. Yeah. You know? But you can't fully, I mean, maybe if you're like a crazy genius and you're going to count for every variable, maybe. But a lot of experience, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But it's really difficult. And that's only like a unique situation. It doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. But I even think, like, yeah, if, like running a business. Like, we try to account for every situation. And yeah. there's no way I can say, let's say I'm going to put a new business plan together. If you're a very experienced businessman, I think you can probably shut down most of the variables. And, like, this is what are we going to do. And you can predict most things that could possibly happen. Or, like, an, an, like a very experienced attorney, right, in an agreement. I think the best attorney in the world, still, like, there's still a hole in there somewhere. Yeah. You can't write a bull, like, completely perfect contract. There's something in there that, like, someone might be able to explore. And, and that's how jiu-jitsu is, too. You can't, like, factor every situation. That's why it's left for trial and error and future generations to continue to test that technique and perfect it. And I think that's why, it's a great point, I think it's why people have to be uh, unafraid to go out and try. Don't, you know, because failure is part of the package. If you, and that's why sometimes, like as a coach, it's com it's scary to put someone in a competition for their first one, because 
you don't know how people are going to handle that loss. Yeah. Right. Because if they're ill-equipped to handle loss and they lose, they might feel that humiliation that we talked about in the very beginning and just stop altogether and shy away from anything ever again. And that would be like the worst thing that could they could do. Right. Like because now they've essentially. I, I, I consider anything that you do out of fear, uh, especially an irrational fear, would be very debilitating towards being your growth as a human, right? Like, there could be things you should be scared of for a good reason, right? Like, I should be scared of a gun pointed at me because that could yeah. mean I could die, right? But if I was just deathly afraid of a picture of a gun, that would be silly, Yeah. right? Uh, that would be an irrational fear. And... Uh, if you compete and you lose and you get humiliated, that to me is an irrational thing, right? Like everybody loses. Like yes. half the people, more than half the people in this room are eventually going to lose, yeah. right? Like out of a 60-man bracket, essentially 15 lost, <laughs> right? One guy made it without losing. You yeah. Know? So the majority are losing. So why are you taking it so much harsher than everybody else? Right? Yeah. And we have the whole judgments of whatnot. But I think it, you just have to realize that everybody loses. I think... People are so in their little tunnel, they only think about themselves and they forget that you know, everybody has a shared experience. Because I think that's what makes it easier to take a loss when you don't feel like you're the only one losing. Right? Because people, in a sense, don't want to be that unique when it, it can be seen negatively. Right? Like, uh, people like being unique when it's considered a great thing. Right? Like, oh, you're the winner of the tournament. That's amazing. But if you're the guy that got flying armbar in three seconds, that's not the guy yeah. <laughs> you want to be remembered as, right? And that happens. <laughs> I got beat by an armbar, like, I think in 15 seconds. And, uh, I did one gi tournament in my life. Did I tell you this? No, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> I had no idea. So, Because uh, when you first came to the gym, and I asked you, like, hey, man, we got a belt test coming up. Would you put a gi on the belt test? Like, Rob, I put a gi on, like, three times my whole life. Yeah. I'm like, okay, he's not going to put a gi on we actually competed in a gi. Like, that's yeah, news. That, that, well, that was a one, one of the times. Two practices. One tournament. <laughs> so my coach at that, Randy, uh, I was maybe like four months training or something yeah. like that. And he's like, oh, there's a the state, the, it was IBJF state championship in Orlando. Okay. Like 2001? Yeah. And he's like, oh, you guys should compete in it. I'm like, oh, okay. And then um, I get, and then coming from the wrestling mindset, I'm like, oh, and I'm wrestling. Even was in high school, I competed in the open division, which is mm -hmm. men's division. I was not supposed to compete there, but I'm like, I always fight the toughest guy. Yeah. Like, oh, what belt we're competing in? Black belt, of course. And like, no brainer. I want to fight the best guy and see what yeah. happens. But you know how that is, <laughs> jiu-jitsu culture. So I'm yeah. 18, my brother's 19. You've been training for four months in jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah, I did like three years of high school wrestling. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and go in there, and then I remember it was Paulo Castro was the coordinator of the event. And they were asking us all sorts of questions, and they're kind of like, well, I'm like, why the hell they make it such a big deal? Whatever, you know? And when we get to the tournament, everybody's warming up, and they don't really warm up. This is 2001. Yeah. Everybody's just like this, and then <laughs> feet twirling, right? Yeah. And me and my brother are warming up like wrestlers, like, ah, high crotch yeah. and double legs. And yeah. People they they thought them, you were crazy. They're, they're, we're yeah. nuts, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of noise and stuff, and then when they start calling the men's black belt divisions, it suddenly becomes as quiet as a tennis match. <laughs> it's me, my brother, and then two other guys. And Paulo Castro was one of them. I forgot the other guy was a, some big dude. And I think I was the first guy to go up, maybe. And I fought Paulo. And again, not being familiar with Gi, you start the match, he literally just grabs his sleeve, pulls me into Ooh. an arm bar. And, ah, and, 
Yeah. It's like a quick tap. I'm like, oh, this is humiliating. And then my brother fought him next, and he did much better than me. But at a certain point, they were just on the out of bounds line, and my brother stepped out of bounds. And I guess he thought he was out of bounds. He stopped, and then this guy threw him on the hard court, hip throw, concrete, oh, basketball court, basketball court. Wow. Boom! Lands right in the solar plexus. My brother. He can go. <laughs> so, oh, that's some funny shit. Yeah, after yeah. that, I remember we went to the, we walked out, and we recorded our matches. Yeah. And VHS. Oh, you got to put that uh, on, on social media, man. Uh, yeah, we gotta I watch guess you got to find the tape. And then after, me and my brother watched the match, and we were at a Wendy's eating like a Frosty, whatever, and this we started cracking up. Like, this is the funniest shit that's ever happened, <laughs> you know? And then, like, a week later, like, some people, that would have ended their experience, right? Like, yeah. that was my first competition experience, and both of us had humiliating losses. I yeah. got flying arm barred, he got knocked out and then, with a hip <laughs> throw, you know? And the next week, I fought Pavel Popovich in a shoot fight and beat him, you know? And he was... Shoot fighting is in... Uh, like, so it, it was in Florida back then. This is again. Was that MMA rules? Like kind of. So it, this all the shoot at least in Florida there were always different rules. Like some of them were open hands. Yeah. Uh, you could kick a knee to the head, but only open. I didn't hands know you face. fought Pablo. Yeah, yeah. This is a, one of those. I fought Minotauro too. Actually. Really? Same tournament. I didn't know that. So I was supposed to fight somebody else, and then they didn't show up, and then Pablo was there. And Pablo was doing gi matches, and he was a brown belt at the time. So. Uh, he stepped in and said, okay, I'll fight him. And it was, this rule was pretty safe. There was no striking to the head at all. Anything goes below. Elbows, punches, knees, but you couldn't touch the head. So it's like slap, kind of like EBI type thing really, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember, so I fought him and then it was a 10-minute round, one straight 10-minute round, and I won on a decision. And I think I won because of ground pound. Because I remember I took him down and he went into the close guard and he did this from his close guard. Yeah, I'm like, I guess you don't train ground up. I guess I started ripping him, and then <laughs> did he forget? Did he forget that you couldn't do it? I, I, I guess he didn't think it was a big deal, or whatever. Yeah. But afterwards, he realized, oh, he had to cover yeah. his body. You know, and it was some good the submissions going both ways. I tried to heel hook him. He tried to kimura me, and it, it was it was a yeah. good match. It was exhausting. I so how'd you win? A decision. Decision. So, me, my brother, and my coach were the only three guys on my team, and then. His team was essentially a Brazilian contingent of like 100 people there. Yeah. So when he lost, they did not like it at all. <laughs> there was a lot of rowing and yelling and yeah. people were going nuts. And then I remember it was like in the warehouse, it was the ghetto thing in the weight room. And I was lying on a bench and my coach goes to me, hey, you got one more fight. I'm like, wait, no, no, it was just one match. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. If you don't fight this next guy... We're gonna to have to fight in the parking lot because they're not gonna leave without you fighting again. Like, oh. So what is it? It was a one match thing, and they made you fight again that same day, even yeah. though it was not. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, I did not want to fight. I mean, I was exhausted. And that was Nogueira. Nogueira, but he wasn't famous. He just fought in rings. But I didn't okay, know. so it was, okay, so this what was it? Two thousand. Two thousand one. Okay. So I didn't know who he was. I just saw some tall guy, and I thought he looked like this kickboxer that I saw on the local circuit. I'm like, oh, he's a kickboxer. I'm just going to take him down and grind upon him. Yeah. And uh, I shot in, got a single leg, and then it just hanged on his leg for like five minutes, and he was just like hitting me all over the place. Yeah. Eventually, he got a rear naked choke and tapped me out. And I was like, whatever, man. Like, that guy wasn't as good as the other guy. He was just yeah. exhausted. And someone goes, man, you don't know who that was? I'm like, who is that? That's Minotauro. I'm like, no idea. Who's Minotauro? 
like, man, you fought in rings and stuff like that. And then I looked him up later. I'm like, oh shit, this guy got sweet. And then, like, not, not not long after that, he blew up in the on the pride. Yeah, scene, yeah, because right? he, yeah. he used to have a school in Florida. So it was, okay. around then, I think he moved back, and then he started fighting more. Got big in pride. But I just remember him, and I got to train with his brother at some point, Minotoro, and yeah. he got feet like paddles, man. Like they're so long. Yeah, I remember. I just kept seeing feet flying at me, like <laughs> triangles and whatnot, but. <laughs> It was like a different era, you know? But, yeah. hey, again, I went from bringing it back. I went from losing, like, 10 seconds to, like, a cheap arm bar. You know, that could have been my end of my jiu-jitsu experience. But then I went next day and I fought freaking beat Pablo and then I fought this guy Minotauro and I went on ADCC, right? So Yeah, well, you, you got to find yeah. a balance, right, between, like, you got to care but not care too. I think when you when you sometimes when you care too much, it's almost like and that that was me. Like I cared so much, it's almost like a problem. Like you gotta keep calm the fuck down, man. Like you know, it's okay if you lose, right? Yeah. You gotta be somewhere in the middle. And then people just don't care at all, right? You want to be somewhere, maybe not in the middle, more closer to caring, but not to the point where it's gonna stop you from competing again, right? Like yeah. It's that's like you don't want it to be something that discourages you. You want it to be something that gives you, you know, the 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 push, the incentive to like, okay, that wasn't my day, but you know, that guy, okay, I gotta get that guy. That's the guy who beat me. I want to get him back, right? Um, but uh, Dave, um, I think it's time. I gotta get going. Um, this was a good show. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys had fun. This is much better uh, said. I, I don't know if it's the light, the space back. I think it's the space. I like it a lot more. So. Yeah, I think it's gonna work out pretty nice. Here. Yeah, we're gonna we're working on some guests here for the next few episodes, and uh, yeah, I had a blast. Thank you, Dave. Uh, wow. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, we got some suggestions recently, so if you guys got more suggestions, please send uh, send them our way, and yeah, share with your friends, spread the word, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. As always, please like, comment, share, all that good social media stuff and help us get some more exposure out there. As always, as well, if you have any suggestions, comments, feedback, please send them our way. We're always happy to learn more about how we can make the show better for you guys. You know, as uh, we mentioned, we've uh, changed the table, uh, changed the studio, upgraded the sound. So... We're working on making this show as high quality as possible, but uh, more important than the production stuff, in our opinion, is the content. So uh, let us know if you guys are enjoying our conversations or if you have anything in particular you want us to talk about, go ahead, send it to our way, and we'll make sure we put it in the show. A final word from one of our sponsors, the Front Headlock Series. The Front Headlock Series, which you can learn about at frontheadlock.com, is a course that I've created back in, I think, uh, maybe five, six years ago, maybe. But it is one of the most important courses that someone can learn early on, uh, particularly if you're not a wrestler or you don't like wrestling. Although the front headlock is a wrestling position, it doesn't require the skills that are traditionally associated with wrestlers, explosiveness and, you know, dropping to your knees and shooting. Uh, as I have gotten older and had knee surgery, those are things I don't enjoy doing as much anymore. So the front headlock, all it is is encircling the head and a shoulder inside your grip uh, and with your chest over the back. 
And this is a very common and easy position to get into, particularly with people who are shooting in on you. You sprawl on them, you can easily get a front headlock, or you can catch a front headlock as they're shooting, uh, as they did in ADCC 2009 against Cyborg and ended up scoring the takedown for off a far knee block, which won me that match. So it's a very powerful series. I've taught it multiple times on seminars, and I've also have it in our curriculum at FFA. So it is an exceptionally powerful tool that anybody can pick up really quickly. It doesn't require any explosiveness or natural ability. You just need to learn the technique, which I break down in great detail on this course. So go ahead. It's on sale right now. You could pick normally it's $77 for the DVD set. Right now it's going only for $40 for the Christmas sale. And we also have a Christmas sale on our website at ffacoach.com. But if you want to pick up the Front Headlock series, go ahead and visit frontheadlock.com.